You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I've got a well-known guy here in the studio in Austin with me. His name is Chip Conley. Chip runs something called Modern Elder Academy, and he's helping people cultivate wisdom, and he's working on understanding different generations, especially in the workplace. Now, if you're young, this episode is for you. You're in your early 20s, maybe you're 30, and you're saying, I'm not that young. Well, you're kind of in the middle there, but you're certainly not 90, right? And Chip's working on how do we get three generations together to share knowledge. And it's really impactful and profound when you do that. I even put my Burning Man camps together that way. I want a couple elders. I want a couple of young people to pick up heavy things uh, and run around and get us all excited. And then a mix of people in the middle because that's actually how societies work. Chip learned all this stuff because he started working at this tiny, tiny tech startup you might have heard of called Airbnb <laughs> as head of global hospitality and strategy years ago, and he was twice the age of the average employee of the company when he came in, and he got the title Airbnb's Modern Elder, which led to where he is today. Chip, welcome. Well, I'm glad you—thank you, Dave. And as a founding board member of Burning Man, I appreciate the the call-out because Burning Man is the kind of place that is incredibly intergenerational. For those who've never been there, they're surprised by that. Will you indulge me for a second and imagine who you would be if you actually had more energy, if your brain fired faster and you could measure it, and you had a calmer nervous system that worked better? That's what this show, that's what my work is all about. You can be that person with a few fixes that really work. In my brand new book, Smarter Not Harder, I will teach you about the little things that make the biggest difference in your life so you can be that person. There's a new anti-nutrient that you haven't heard about yet that is weakening everything you do from your workouts to your meditations. You can remove it from your diet and you'll notice a shift quickly. Learn how to get the right amount of exercise for you in the very least amount of time and it's way less than you think. Smarter Not Harder is about simplicity and efficiency so you have more time to work on the things that matter to you. You can use the time to work on yourself or to help other people, but it's time that's yours that you're not using effectively right now. If you want to get your energy back like I did, you want to manage the stress so you can handle anything, maybe even drop the weight, check out Smarter Not Harder wherever you buy books. This is stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. Smarter Not Harder, thank you for your support. Burning Man is the kind of place that is incredibly intergenerational. For those who've never been there, they're surprised by that. Uh, That there's, you know, frankly, the founders of Burning Man were, you know, they're they're boomers. So it's a really great mix of people. And I I would love to see that utopian world, uh, you know, mirrored throughout the world. Uh, And... You're also a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, these are mostly business things. I'm talking about business and marketing uh, and some emotional equations around happiness. And, and you kind of shifted from one to the other. Um, I'm just looking at uh, questions I could I could ask you that maybe no one's asked you before. So when 
When did you first become aware um, of your elders uh, having something of value to you? How old were you? I was, you know, I was probably a kid. Um, I was a kid. And it was my grandmother, Nani, my my, my yeah. dad's mom. The other three grandparents I had, <clears throat> I can't say that I learned a lot from them. Um, they were fine people, but they were drinking <laughs> by four in the afternoon. Long story short is my grandmother, Nani, she just had a sparkle in her eyes. She had a, she had a, 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 a joie de vivre. Um, I, I started a boutique hotel company in my early 20s or my mid-20s called Joie de Vivre, partly because of my grandma Nani. Because I used to say to her, like, you've got a Joie de Vivre. You've got like a joy of life about you. Um, so I learned a lot about happiness from her, um, about it's not something you pursue. Um, you know, and instead of pursuing happiness, you should practice joy. That's something I learned from her. Uh, wow. And uh, yeah, so she was special. She was the one who lasted the longest. She was the last of the four grandparents to pass away. What do 20-year-olds not know about, say, 60-year-olds that they should know? Well, I, here's the number one thing I would just say about 20-year-olds, because I did I started doing this when I was 28. You can become wise at any age. Yes. So uh, Modern Elder Academy, MEA, is the world's first midlife wisdom school. But I've met lots of people who are wise at 25 and not wise at 75. So my definition of wisdom is metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. And the reason that the second part of that is because wisdom is a social good. If you're savvy or shrewd, you might metabolize your wisdom for your own sake. But if you're actually doing it for the benefit of somebody beyond yourself, then there's a, there's a distilled compassion piece. But the key thing to know in your 20s is the thing, what, what I learned at 28 was I was an idiot CEO of a boutique hotel company. I had one hotel. Did you ever go to the, the Phoenix Hotel in the Tenderloin? Sort of a rock and roll hotel. No. No, it's just like this funky rock and roll hotel in the Tenderloin. I, cool. I bought it when I was 26. Um, didn't have a lot of family money. How did you buy a hotel when you were 26? I bought it for $800,000. Can oh, you imagine okay. buying a 44-room hotel in San Francisco? That's a good deal. And, well, it would, we didn't own the land, so we had a 40-year land lease. Okay. But yeah, I bought it and then I spent $200,000 renovating it. I mean, like, so I had a million one that I had to raise to do it. And so, yeah, a million one won't go very far in San Francisco no. today. You might get a studio condo. Yeah, and a bag of needles. Yeah, that too. Um, so I still own that place 35, 36 years later. Um, but long story short is when I was 28, two years into owning that hotel, um, we had the, the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I was up shit creek. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. We lost all of our business. I had no cash. And so one weekend I went home and a friend of mine said, you know, you need to start writing in a diary. <laughs> I think he was just tired of hearing from me kvetching. Um, and so I pulled a diary off the wall and I wrote on the, on the front of it, my wisdom book. Mm. And from that point forward, I, every weekend would sit down and now 34 years later, I still do this. And I sit down and I write four to six or eight bullet points of what I'd learned that week. And by doing that, I was actually metabolizing my experience. I was taking my life lessons and making them tangible. So uh, you could do that at any age. And I think that when I would, the thing I'd say to someone in their 20s is learning lessons is part of what life's all about, but then actually using those lessons for your good and for the value of others is the opportunity of wisdom. There's a little piece of advice in there uh, that maybe listeners didn't get 
is that you wrote it down because every day you have wisdom points that come up, but we are programmed in our, our meat operating system to forget, to forget the good stuff, to forget the wisdom and to just stay worried about, you know, not, not running out of food and being safe and all of that. And if I, I look at any of the work I've done around integration, whether it's psychedelic or from the neurofeedback school that I run, uh, if you write it down, <laughs> it takes it out of the mucky ego, subconscious, unconscious thing, and it crystallizes it, even if you never read it again. And if you read it again, you get your wisdom. So you've been doing that for 34 years. <clears throat> I've been doing that for 34 years. And let me take it even one step further, Dave. You can do this with a team. Mm. What you can do is to say once a quarter, as a team, you come together and you say, the 10 of you, the 12 of you, what was your biggest lesson of the last quarter? And each person talks about it. And then as a group, you say, what was our biggest team lesson? And that's a great way to not just sort of get clear on what it was, but to actually socialize it. Because actually that's the, the next step is if you actually talk about your lessons um, not only are you recognizing them yourself, but you're actually acknowledging them to other people and you learn it faster that way. And mm. as a team, you Smart. share the wisdom. And so at MEA, we talk about wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So how do you create the crucible for wisdom to be shared in a way that is serving everybody? That is a really cool idea. I'm going to start doing that with my group of companies. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah, it, it is easy. And, and then you have the organizational learning. Um, the more I've run multiple companies, the more I, I see each company almost as a, a person. It, it's an information field. And, you know, individuals come in and they leave over time. And at what point, if everyone in the company has been replaced three times, is it the same company? Mm. Well, it is. And and all yeah. the cells in your body get replaced about oh, every seven years or something. Yeah. But it's, you're the same person. So it turns out both companies and humans are ephemeral. We We actually don't exist except as fields of information. And what that means is that if you can take the lessons learned and you can write them down, that they strengthen the information field that holds things it's together. The, it's the information field. It's the cultural field too. Oh, smart. What's the difference? Information field would be data and knowledge and <clears throat> how we do things. And the culture field would be how do we behave? You know, what, mm, are, what are the, the behavioral norms that you know when you come into this company? Ah, you learn them quickly. Um, in fact, they're never written on the wall. There's just, no. there's the values on the wall and they say, oh, here's our values. But very few companies say, <laughs> here's the unwritten rules of how we do culture here. Mm -hmm. And I like to say that culture is what happens around here when the boss isn't around. Um, that's my definition of culture. And I think, so I think culture is, yes, as you can churn through a bunch of people, but the, often it's the, cult, the culture that's still there. What do you do when you're running a company and say someone's not a cultural fit? They, they might have skills, but they come in and they do not behave the way they need to behave to be successful in an environment. Well, I think the first question is, so first of all, I don't know, I, I don't love cultural fit. I love cultural ad. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is because if it's a cultural fit, it means that somebody has to fit in. And a cultural ad is giving the indication that we're open to exploring having people who don't fit so, the dominant culture. So, so culture evolves for sure. I mean, I, I'm certainly not a normal person at any organization. I think we could all I, agree with I, that. I, I wouldn't have hired me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I, I'm with you there. I, I, I want you to, to criticize my definition of culture. So I'm going to share it and then I want Please. you to contrast it with yours. Yes. So I, I look at culture as, as like a school of fish. 
right? And they're all swimming in, in a direction. And if one of the fish just starts going sideways and it's the wrong direction, the other fish automatically kind of get it to go in the right way. So we're all moving in the same direction. Um, and when a culture is not working, that means when a fish goes sideways, everyone follows one fish, right? Instead of all of the fish moving in in unison like a flock of birds. Well, I think what you've just described is the U.S. military, but... <laughs> no, it, it's, um, it's not they're marching one direction because it's a joint decision where they all go. Right? Sure. It's not, it's not like there's one intelligence that tells a school of fish when to turn <clears throat> or a flock of birds when to go. They're all doing it together. But if one of them is completely like going sideways, the whole flock doesn't lose its cohesion. Correct. But I think it, so I think we'd start by saying, in terms of the definition of culture, there's no right or wrong culture. So there's. Okay. A uh, culture of narcissism, sociopathy, and slavery? That seems wrong. That would be wrong. (laughs) Totally agree. Totally agree. But in terms of a successful culture, let's say a, okay. a, a success, yes. a, yeah, and, and maybe there's a you know a successful narcissistic culture, uh, but I don't think it's I don't think it's sustainable. Yeah. Um, but there's successful cultures that are very different. Oracle is very different than Apple, which is very different than Facebook. Very true. And and so I think the question of culture is the I would I would look at it this way: culture is what serves the the business interests and the people within the yes. business. And makes them the most effective as possible. And maybe happy as well? Yeah, for sure. Happiness is a big piece of it. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I, I've am i written books on culture. So, you know, my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get you. Their <laughs> Mojo from Maslow, is based upon t- applying Maslow's hierarchy needs to companies and to cultures. And so I, I do believe that you have to get conscious about what kind of culture you want. And this is where most companies get it wrong. They actually don't get clear on like, what is the culture here? What kind of culture do we want? And they aren't, they're not, nor, nor they're not conscious about it, nor are they explicit about it. And so I, the hiring process, frankly, is, is when you determine this. And, you know, when we were at Airbnb or when I, when I was at Airbnb, we had a, a process where anybody who's getting hired in the company had to go through a, a cultural values interview of two, two people in departments that had nothing to do with the, the group that you were going to be working with. So it could be an engineer who's coming along and everybody on the engineering team wants to hire them. But if the the values um, interview, interviewers didn't like them, then a conversation needs to happen. So there was an element. And so that was weird. I mean, it was a little bit weird. It was unusual for sure. But I think it had a profound impact on making sure that there weren't these little fiefdoms right. and these silos of like, oh, the engineering culture is that and the marketing culture is this, and the policy and legal culture is that. So there was something that actually held it all together. That's cool. Now's my chance. <laughs> I got to ask Eric Schmidt a question that I want to ask you as well. Yes, please. I'm honored. And for listeners, guys, Eric Schmidt was the the CEO and chairman of, of Google. So well, here's what I asked Eric. I said, okay, scaling the tech isn't that hard. It's an engineering problem and we know how to solve those. But how in the heck did you scale the people organization that big without the narcissists destroying it? Yeah. So how did you do that at Airbnb? Yeah, so Airbnb, so I had to do it at Joie de Vivre, but when I when we grow to 3,500 employees, but yeah. when I went to Airbnb, it was a tech company. And tech companies you grow a lot faster than you know bricks Crazy. and mortar companies. So um, I want to give you know, hats off to the three founders. Sure. They believe deeply in culture. And um, so I, they liked my book, Peak. Um, and so they were fascinated by the idea of the peak culture. 
But what they were really most interested in is creating a culture that actually was going to be around 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brian, who I acted as the mentor to, but I, I learned as much from Brian as he learned from me. Uh, I called myself a mentor, a mentor <laughs> and an intern at the same time. Um, and so they've invested in culture. We did something called One Airbnb. I, I, this is a great story. So when we had only about 500 to 1,000 employees, we started it and we kept doing it until we had 3,000 employees. And then we had, it became too expensive, but um, we had to look for other approaches. So we brought every single employee from 22 countries around the world to San Francisco for like a four-day love fest. And it was a, a way for us to once a year and then ultimately every other year, bring everybody together, help people to be on the same page in terms of where we're going mission-wise, business strategy-wise, but most importantly, help people to feel the culture, you know, because uh, pre, pre-COVID, pre uh, pre-pandemic, yeah, the idea of pa- something palpable that you could touch was exceptionally important. You know, we're learning in this era that, you know, how, how do you do that in, in an era of Zoom? But back then, we made the investment to say, let's bring everybody together. And I think what it did was it meant that we had fewer of, I mean, we didn't have that many coaches in the company because we didn't need coaches so much. It, because there was a sense that often the coaches were someone helping someone deal with a a problem that in on a team or in terms of their own purpose. But we had, you know, we had mentors. We had like a mentorship program that helped people to feel like I don't need an outside coach coming in and telling me this. I need an internal culture-minded mentor who could do that. And so and I had over a hundred mentees over the course of my seven and a half years at, at Airbnb, which was wow. a lot. What a cultural difference. Do you want to know what Eric said? What did he say? <laughs> he said, well, we identified that we had, um, uh, they had knaves and some other word whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, so basically people were bad actors building empires. Those were the knaves. And then they had these other people who were basically weird, maybe not not a cultural fit, yeah. but high producers who HR didn't like, maybe, but who were were not doing anything harmful. They they were just odd, and I I think it was like knights and knaves or something like that. He had a great a great thing for it, and he said the knaves were the problem. Those were the narcissists building their own little fiefdoms, and he just said public and traumatic firings. He said, we only needed a few of those. And then the rest of them left the company. And I was like, wow, like talk about a difference of culture, yeah, right? Like we will hunt you down. We will find you. You'll exit the company, you know, the, the walk of shame with the box kind of thing. And that way everyone else who's playing tricks knows. And here you are with like mentors and mentees, but you had to make a bad hire. What happened? Oh, we made lots hires? of bad hires. And, and there were people who, I mean, the hiring process is essential, yeah. but someone will make it through and then like show up with their true self. And right. like, how do you deal with that? This year's biohacking conference has more chambers than Harry Potter. Okay, not really, but it's a dad joke and it is in Orlando this year. Seriously, some of the incredible results I've had with my biohacking come from large pieces of equipment. Call them biohacking chambers that help you recover, detox, and heal. Go to the biohacking conference so you can demo all of these and feel what they're like. Things like hyperbaric oxygen with OxyHealth, our title sponsor, infrared light, cold chambers, heat chambers, ozone chambers, even salt chambers. 
Join me at my ninth annual biohacking conference in Orlando, June 22nd to 24th. Did you know that if you improve the quality of your sleep, you can actually get more sleep in less time? And sleep provides a bunch of other benefits like your body works faster, you focus better, and you recover faster the next day. I recommend you try Qualia Night, which is a nighttime nootropic from my friends at Neurohacker. It contains 25 different nutrients. It's got cognitive enhancers, neuro precursors, and other compounds that give you everything you need to sleep better. I take Qualia Night every night, and I've noticed a meaningful improvement in my sleep quality, which I can feel the next day and even measure on my sleep devices. Go to neurohacker.com slash Asprey and get Qualia Night for just $29 for an entire 30-day supply. And when you use code Dave, you'll score an extra 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Asprey. Use code Dave. You'll really appreciate how you feel when you wake up. But someone will make it through and then like show up with their true self. And like, how do you deal with that? So uh, one of my favorite tricks with someone who's not showing up the way that they, we want them to is to ask them, what are the five adjectives you want people to use to describe you? And so I get the five adjectives and then I say, I'm going to go out to the dozen people who you work with the most. And I'm going to ask them a few questions, like a 360, all anonymous and one of the questions I'm going to ask them is, what are the five adjectives that best describe you? And then we're going to see. And so get those five adjectives from the people who work with them. Look at them and compare them with that person's five adjectives. And you do the comparison and say, okay, none of your five adjectives are showing up here. So let's look, go back to your five adjectives and let's say, what are the habits or the behaviors oh. or the hacks that we can actually put in place? If you want to feel like you're an empowering leader what what do we have to do to help you to be empowering to the people you work with? And that worked. That worked. It And sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it didn't work at all. And when it didn't, that's when it was clearly time to say, no more, this isn't working. Sure. And then you you move on. And yeah, and, and quite frankly, when someone's habitual in some of their personality flaws, my favorite, my favorite question to ask in an interview is what's the number one way you're misperceived in the workplace? I love this question because what it forces someone to do is to go off script um, because a normal job interview can be just so, you know, rote. Mm -hmm. And it forces them to go off script and and say, wow, okay, am I self-aware enough to know how I am misperceived? And and if I say that, how's it going to come across? And so people sometimes get really flustered with that question. But that question was the number one question that worked for me because it allowed me to go down the rabbit hole with them based upon their answer. And so wow. they say, people think I'm an asshole, but really I'm a nice guy. It's like, okay, let's talk about that. How are you, why is there that misperception? And so I, it ends up almost being like a therapy session. Sounds like it. But quite frankly, that's what you got to do. Uh, and so that, that kind of question helps to, you know, weed out the, the bad apples. One of the things that you're working on with the Modern Elder Academy is this kind of midlife, uh, midlife coaching, uh, I don't know, midlife, what do you call it? Wisdom school. Wisdom school, I like that. I'm thinking back to a time where I was having a, a really serious problem when I was running Bulletproof uh, with with an employee, and it just didn't make sense. And I was dealing with a narcissist, and narcissists will make you think you're crazy. Like, that's, that's their operating system. I've, I've studied it. I'm probably going to write a book about it because not about that one experience, but just yeah. about the pattern recognition oh, yeah. to be able to find them. Um, it's a society, society-wide problem that's getting worse right now. 
but I sat down with a, my friend Ken. I'm not going to say his last name. I don't know if he wants that kind of publicity, but he runs a $500 million real estate company. And, and I mentioned the problem and he looked at me and, and he picked up his phone. He said, oh, you need to fire her. Uh, are we going to use my phone or yours? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a guy who's probably 10, 15 years older than me uh, and had seen the same pattern. And since then, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs, people with 10 plus years as CEOs, and we all have had this experience, but no one really talks about it because it's actually kind of shameful, right? And I, I actually waited another six months where were incredibly traumatic and probably cost me $100 million to make the decision. Oh, wow. Um, but hey, you live in you live and you learn, right? And um, I asked him, "How did you know this? Like, how did you know to to do that?" And and he said, "Oh, I uh, said mentors." And I said, "Really? Well, who mentored you?" And he said, "Jack Welch." <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know if I'd want Jack Welch as my mentor, but he had Jack had some positives and he also had some negatives. He, he did, right? Yes. Uh, but you know, a vaunted business leader. Yes. And, and like, how do you do this? And he said, "Oh, I got to know him, you know, twenty years ago, and and I I just you know formed a relationship, and I could call him." Uh, and he would just give me advice. And and that's where I want to ask you this question. Yeah. So wherever someone is in their career, if you want a senior executive in your back pocket who can mentor you, what is how do you ask for that? What does a mentorship look like? A couple thoughts on this. So let me get, I'm gonna tell you a quick story. Sure. So when I was in my early 30s and my company Joie de Vivre was growing quickly, we ultimately grew to 52 boutique hotels around California. Um, I knew that culture was important. And I knew that I wanted to learn from the best. So I called up Dallas, Texas, and I said to the operator at Southwest Airlines uh, headquarters, I want to talk to Herb Kelleher, the <laughs> founding CEO man, right? of Southwest Airlines. And she put me through, and I got Colleen Barrett, who was uh, his assistant, his executive assistant. One of the most powerful people in the company. <laughs> that She was very much then, and she ultimately became president of the company. Yeah. <laughs> How does that happen? And EA becomes a president. I mm -hmm. love that. Um, and I said to her, I said, my story is I'm a young CEO and I want to learn culture from the best and I would love to learn from Herb. And she said, well, he's really busy, but if you write him a letter, he might respond. And so basically, long story short is I wrote him a letter. Three weeks later, I got a letter back and with answers to all three of my questions. He said, you asked me two of those three questions no one's ever asked me before. You're welcome to write me once a year. And so for the next 10 years, I wrote Herb Kelleher a letter. Wow. This is pre-internet. So these were all written letters. And he would answer them. And ultimately, I think Colleen was answering some of them in the, of in the later years. Um, but long story short is your mentor doesn't necessarily have to be someone you've ever met. Now, mm. you do, may have to have the chutzpah to say, I'm going to reach out to whomever and see if they respond to me. And most of the time they won't. But there's you, the wisdom is not, wisdom doesn't have to be local. It doesn't have to be the person who's, you know, down, down the you know the the hall from you doesn't have to be someone who lives in the same place as you. Doesn't even have to be someone you know. So, but back to your question: How do you ask the question? Well, first of all, you don't pop the M word too quickly. Yeah. Uh, marriage is not popped <laughs> on the first d date. So go out and get to know the person. And the the number one piece of advice I have is to say, ask the question of like, I want to learn about how to run a great meeting from you. I want to tap into your wisdom. Say that. At the end, I want to tap into your wisdom. Smart. Tap into your wisdom is something that's hard to turn down. Um, and wisdom is something everybody appreciates if, when it's applied to them. And the more specific you are about what you're looking for, the easier it is for them to say yes. 
where where a potential mentor is worried is that you want a, a long-term marriage relationship. Right. And there are really two kinds of mentorship. Um, and we teach this at, at MEA, at the Modern Elder Academy. The first kind is the librarian. When you're the librarian as a mentor, your role is to share your know-how and know-who. And the mentee's role is to ask you great questions. And that's what I did with, with Herb Kelleher. Asked him the questions, he answered them, I learned something. That's a finite role. And so if you have, want that kind of mentor, then you might be specific after the second or third conversation to say, I'd like to have you be my mentor just to ask you questions occasionally. Perfect. The other kind of mentor is a much more comprehensive relationship. It's what I call the confidant. And the confidant, I, I came up with that word. It's not a, you know, not a, an unknown word, but I came up with it because there was a woman at Airbnb who was from France and I was, she was re directly reporting to me and two months into me, me working with her, she said, Chip, you're my confidant. And I said, Lisa, you haven't given me any juicy details yet. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, oh no, in my part of France, a confidant is the one who gives you confidence. Oh, that's a different definition. Exactly. And she said, you're my permissionary. You're the one who gives me permission, but you're also the one who helps me understand how to be successful. And mm. what? So that's a different kind of relationship. In that kind of relationship, I was the one asking the questions. She wasn't asking the questions. I was asking the questions. And the questions really were almost like being a coach, almost like being Bill Campbell, yeah. being the person who just like said, hey, here's here's a few questions. Like, you know, what did you learn in the last week? Or, you know, uh, how did that meeting go? You know, what do you think you could have done better? Or, you know, more, I use appreciative inquiry a lot, which is a, a form of asking questions that helps show possibilities and opportunities. And like, what do you want your role to look like a year from now? And what are the key things, skills you want to have learned by then? And so a confidant relationship is much more comprehensive. You can't have that many confidant relationships. You can have a lot of librarian relationships. So distinguishing between the two is helpful for you to determine whether you can say yes or not as a mentor. It feels like a lot of people in their early to mid-career need confidence and permission, as you described. And maybe as you become more of an elder, you don't need confidence and you don't need permission because you're just going to do it and you're either going to fail or not. Yeah. And once you realize that, you don't really even need confidence because you're not afraid of failing. You have some pattern recognition. Let's yeah. start by saying you've, if, if you have <clears throat> metabolized your experience, you've created some wisdom. Um, you may have Women actually in particular, as they get older in the workplace, get more confident. Uh, men's confidence actually starts to plateau a little bit in their 50s, mm. um, whereas women's continues to escalate. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but long story short is, yeah, I think as we get older, but you can have a mentor at any age. And let me also, let me talk about my my mentor relationship with Brian Chesky. I was at, he asked me to come in and help democratize hospitality. That's what he said. That was his opening line. Chip, I want you to be my in-house mentor to help democratize hospitality globally because we want to be a big player someday. And this was when nobody had ever heard of Airbnb. And so I said, okay, let's talk. Um, and what I learned over time was that he was my mentor as well. So we mentored each other. I mentored him around emotional intelligence and leadership and strategy and, frankly, the hospitality and travel business, the business, the industry he was disrupting. He taught me so much about venture capitals. capitals. Right. I never, I never had a venture capital in my own company uh, investing in me. And so I learned about that. I learned about basically product. I, le I learned about technology. I learned about cultural 
changes of that are happening due to millennials. And so the best kind of relationship, in my opinion, is a mutual mentorship because it means that you're going to learn from each other. It's, it's full of reciprocity. I, I really like that, that perspective on it. And wait, let's, one other thought on that. We live in an era by the year 2025, two years from now, the majority of Americans are going to have a younger boss. We've never seen this before. Interesting. As of last year, 44% of Americans had a younger boss. By the year 2025, the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. So we're living <laughs> in an era. I mean, this is we haven't had this before. No. So we're living in an era where we better get really wise around the idea of the physics of wisdom. It moves in both directions. Right. It doesn't just go from old to young. It can actually go from young to old as well. Early in my tech career, uh, when I was a, a co-founder of a, a part of the company that held Google's first servers, it was the first big data center company, Exodus Communications. Um, I came in and I realized people weren't taking me seriously because I'm whatever, 25. Uh, and so I had this idea, I'm going to dye my temples gray. And I'm automatically going to get a raise and a promotion because literally people have this pattern of recognition <laughs> yes. like he must have. So I actually went to a hairdresser and at the time there was no way to dye your hair gray because no one would want to do that. I'm like, <laughs> foiled. Uh, so I never did that. But it, it literally was one of those things where like I have something to do here. And the business that I helped to start like as an intrapreneur, we, we did a hundred million a quarter in revenue. Like it, it was mm. a big deal, mm. right? But to be able to walk into, you know, the CEO's office and, be taken seriously. I was like, I need something else. And eventually I, I did get that. I had an office outside our office and I got to attend board meetings as long as I didn't speak. Right. But that was maybe through force of intellect mm -hmm. uh, and, and study and, and all of that. And maybe not through dyeing my hair, but, but well, the founding fathers <laughs> wore wigs. I mean, they were gray wigs. So like there was an, there was a history of this, although actually in the era we live in today, um, elders are not necessarily appreciated in the workplace and in general. No, they're, they're um, not. And there's lots of reasons for that. But I, what I would just say to you is like, what, what do you, what, if you look at your pattern recognition, mm -hmm. what do you, what are two or three things that you're wiser about today than you were 20 years ago? Um, being more selective uh, in my hiring process and just in, in the people around me. Uh, one of the things that, that you don't learn unless you have good mentors is that, if you accumulate either power or money or fame, the percentage of people who approach you who are narcissists or sociopaths goes up dramatically. That's true. You're like a, a light bulb with moths, right? <laughs> and this is why you see so many celebrities who are just weird because they've just been traumatized by people trying to use them, right? And this is why, I mean, you have filters in your organization, right? Not anyone can just reach out to you because there's people who are just bad actors, Right. And, and half of them don't even know they're bad actors. They think they're good actors, but they're bad actors. And like, it's so confusing. I didn't understand. Well, they also any think that, that yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a mirror phenomena where they want to be you when they grow yeah. up. And that's, and that's, um, I'm empathetic to that. And then I'm also protective because, yeah. uh, we do get a lot of people who come to the Modern Elder Academy who say, oh, I, I've always wanted to do a retreat center. I mean, my oh my god, my, the, the knockoff artists. Yeah, I, I my history of like you know, time. a boutique hotel. Yeah. You know, people want to be a boutique hotel, restaurateur, and and spa owner. People want to do that, and now like retreat centers are the big thing. And so like, oh, Chip, I want to come and be a retreat center owner, and I'm fine with actually helping to educate them. Mm -hmm. Not so fine if they um, want too much. You know, yeah. and I also don't mind people stealing. I mean, when we, you and I write books, 
Mm-hmm. If we write books, we have we're in the business of sharing our wisdom. Yep. And so I don't mind sharing the wisdom. Where I, if someone's going to rip me off though, and start to say things that are, isn't giving credit, and yeah. I, you know, then that then that st- that that right. crosses a line. Right. So how would someone who is in a position to be a mentor filter out people who are feeling envy? Well, I would say the number one thing I would ask a a mentee, a prospective mentee, is what is it that you most want to get out of this? And if I don't, if I'm not satisfied with the answer, both tonally as well as Mm content-wise of that answer, then I'll be cautious. You know, it. If someone says to me, "I just want to learn what it's like to be Chip," it's like, well, that's not a, that's not a mentorship that I do. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. If someone says to me, I just want to learn what it's like to be Chip, it's like, well, that's not a, that's not a mentorship that I do. I mean, if you're actually working in the company, sure, then you'll learn how it is. But I'm not, I'm, I, I don't need a stalker. Um, and I don't need somebody who is going to try to replicate who I am right. by being, you know, you know, I love Oscar Wilde's quote, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Um, <laughs> Amen. So, um, but long story short is I, I would just say if it feels like the person is there in a non-reciprocal kind of way. Right. I, I won't go there. So. I I like that that answer a lot. There's, uh, uh, there, I get approached all the time, people saying, I want to, I, I want to be a mentor. Like you said, like a little too, a little too soon there. Like, let's, let's not get married. Uh, but I, I do provide a lot of answers to people um, just because like I said, it's easy to do that. And, and, you know, you have formats, whether it's yeah. the, your conference and other formats for people to sort of hang out in the orbit. And yeah. and yeah, Modern Elder Academy, we do workshops year round and we're going to we're we're in Baja now and we're moving into Santa Fe, which we should talk about in New Mexico mm-hmm. since that's oh, your yeah. upbringing. So Santa Fe, we have we'll have multiple campuses there and so we create the the crucible for people to spend time with me and my co-founders uh Jeff and Christine and all of our facilitators and all of our faculty. So have people have the opportunity in a five or seven night program to actually get up close and personal. What we have to be careful of with in, in those is to make sure that someone's coming there and that they know that there have to be boundaries as well. Um, so just because you're in a workshop with 24 people doesn't mean that, you know, Chip can have a meal with you, you know, with every meal. But I like, I really, when someone makes a commitment and says, I'm coming to spend five or seven nights and I'm going to spend the money to come down 
whether it's to Baja or to Santa Fe, it's a bit of a pilgrimage. And I really appreciate when people come uh, mm-hmm. because I'm I'm going to show up and assume best intentions until <laughs> I'm I'm proof, uh, proven wrong. Ga- game theory. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, and for listeners, if you haven't gotten into game theory, always assume best intentions and put yours forward. And that creates mathematically the best scenario. And until one person shows not good intentions, at which point you stop doing that. That's exactly right. So, but if you lead with uh, mistrust, it always immediately, if people are doing the the best fit solution, then it's going to go sideways. And a similar thought on that is, you know, uh, show when you are working with someone, give them a, a reputation to live up to. So I, I was doing an email with someone this morning who's struggling in something, and I I had to give her some confidence. I said. I know because of the following three things of what you've done historically, you have the capability to do this. So, and you have, and people know you're going to succeed at this. And so in essence, I'm giving her a reputation to live up to. Mm, now, if I smart. go too far, I, I can freak her out and, and create performance anxiety. Yeah. But, but this is part of the role of being the permissionary to show some of the history because often we're so lacking in objectivity about our talents uh, that someone else sometimes has to point them out. Mm. I I love that. So it, it's just the right sprinkling of, of that. All right, let's let's talk some more about what happens when when people hit midlife. Yes. Um, your your story about kind of why you started Modern Elder Academy. Uh, it, it, it's a little dark, but tell me yeah. what's going on. So I had a midlife crisis that I now call a midlife chrysalis. I'll come back to that. (laughs) Um, Between 45 and 49, um, it sounds very self-indulgent, you know, a midlife crisis. But I was going through a lot. I was going through psychological stuff that gave me probably, I was was probably in a depression. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a long-term relationship ending. I had a foster son who's African-American who was an adult going to prison wrongfully. I had I was running out of cash for my company, Joie de Vivre, 3,500 employees during the Great Recession. You know, didn't have the deep pockets to be able to keep it going. And I didn't want to do that anymore. I frankly, after 22, at that point, 22 yeah. years of running that company, I just didn't want to do it. So, and then I started losing some friends to suicide. Um, one of my closest friends has the same first name I have. His name was Chip Hankins. He's my insurance broker. He also was the person I would turn to for spiritual advice occasionally, and he took his own life. And so to go to uh, someone's memorial service and have everybody tell their chip stories at a time when you're feeling dark yourself, wow, that was like going, I don't know if you ever saw the Gilligan's Island episode where he falls from the coconut tree at his own funeral. That's what it felt like for me. (laughs) What a reference. um, I'm pretty sure millennials didn't get that one. Yeah, I definitely did not. Um, So, uh, I had a flatline experience. I um, broke my ankle playing baseball at Gavin Newsom's bachelor party uh, set for his second wedding and um, got a bacterial infection in my leg, was on an antibiotic, I had a septic leg, was on a strong antibiotic that it turns out I was um, allergic to. Oh, that'll mess you up. And so I had, was giving a speech on stage in St. Louis and at the end of the speech, I was sitting thankfully, signing books and I went unconscious and the paramedics showed up quickly, and that's when I started having my flatline experiences because they had the heart monitors on. And so they had to get the paddles out and bring me back to life at age 47, which is interesting because 47 is the low point in the U-curve of happiness. Wow. So the social science research has shown that really the low point of adult satisfaction, life satisfaction, is 
between 45 and 50. Um, your mileage may vary. Um, but the bottom line is that's the low point. And I, so I, I didn't know any of this when I was having my flatline experience and my dark night of the soul at 47. I now think of this era and I think of midlife as sort of the caterpillar to butterfly journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the chrysalis that's in, in between. And that's where, yeah, it's dark and solitary and gooey, but it's actually where the magic happens. The transformation happens. And I think midlife is an era of life when we're going through a lot of transitions, um, you know, menopause and empty nest and career changing and divorces and and something stirring inside of you because something like internal is changing. Maybe you're moving your operating system from your ego to your soul. Who knows? And we don't have anything in society to help support people through an, an era that is full of uh, crazy transitions. There's a word called middle-essence that social science talk about now, but the pop culture doesn't talk about it. Just like 1903, no one had ever heard of adolescence. Adolescence as a word is only 120 years old. So we now know ad- what adolescence is, and we have adolescence in the room here. Um, and, <laughs> hey. Um, <laughs> so adolescence is has a respect, and it has been given a huge amount of investment by society. Child labor laws, you know, college counseling and junior high schools and high schools. Um, what has middle essence been given? <laughs> it's a time where people are going through hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. But we have no schools or tools or rites of passage or rituals for people for this era of life that often is sometime between 45 and 65. Uh, and so that's why we created the Modern Elder Academy because we felt like there was a need for a place for for people to go and reimagine and repurpose themselves in what Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, the famous academic whose mother was Margaret Mead, father was Gregory Bateson, said was the midlife atrium, a place where you go and reflect and reimagine your life. And because, yes, we have a lot more longevity globally than we did 100 years ago. But a lot of people think of it as a metaphor of like, oh, you have two additional bedrooms in the backyard Aging is about just having more time being old. And Mary Catherine Bateson famously said, it's not about having extra bedrooms in the backyard. It's about re-architecting the home so that your midlife is like an atrium. So you have light and air and space for reflection. And so that's why I created the Modern Elder Academy. Um, The average age of the person who comes to MEA is 54. The average age they think they're going to live till is ninety. So that's it. I know, I know, I know. Hikers. I know they're not hackers. They're not. They they. But so, but if think about that for a minute. If they if you're fifty four and you're going to live till ninety, you have thirty six years of adulthood ahead of you, and you have thirty six years of adulthood behind you because fifty four minus eighteen. Mm. So at fifty four, you're halfway through your adult life. So that doesn't, you know, the crowd of people who are listening to us right now, you may say, oh, no, you're like not a, you're like a third of the way through your adult life or a quarter of your way. I, I get it. I get it. But I'm just saying this is the sure, 3,000 alums from 42 countries have come to, to MEA in Baja. Long story short is when people actually wake up to the fact that they actually have as much life ahead of them, adult life, as they have behind them at 54, it's a, it, it's, is the opportunity for someone to ask the question, what am I going to regret if I don't learn it or do it now? It sort of allows a person to say, I can become a beginner again. It, ta- it allows them to become liminal. It allows them to say, so yes, 
First of all, first off, we need to help people in midlife to say that. Secondly, um, there's a growing number of people who feel like they're age fluid. Um, and it's not, you know, in the era of gender fluidity, let's, why not have age fluidity? Age fluidity is the idea. It's not, we're not talking about someone who's ageless. Um, at, we're, we're talking about somebody because when someone says you're ageless, they're sort of saying you look young or you are young. Age fluid is like, I am all of the ages I could ever be and don't, you know, pigeonhole me with yeah. a particular age. Just like gender fluidity 20 years ago, people were like, what are you talking about? Or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think age fluidity is going to be a thing. Yep. And it it might be hard to tell for the people who maybe have done biohacking since the early days. Well, and there may be, and as an employer, there may get to a place where you actually get to understand the 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 biometrics of an employee you're going to hire. I mean, who knows? I mean, it could get scary on some level, but on the other level, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if before you marry someone, if you understood their metrics a little bit and understood how long they might be living, et cetera. So I, I, I'm, I think there's a lot of privacy concerns here that we have to be careful of. And at the same time, I, I think it's nuts that we think of two 55-year-olds as exactly the same when they have very different um, lifestyles and very different gene pools. Mm. Yeah, it's it's going to get really interesting real fast here too. Uh, that's for sure with all of the AI stuff coming down yeah, the line too. For sure. If you were starting your role at Airbnb today, would you have used chat GPT to help you <laughs> figure out what's going on with culture? Wow, great question. Um, for sure, we would have used it and we will use it. And Airbnb, I'm sure, is is if not their use if if it's not chat gbt something else some other using. ai machine learning there's a lot yeah. of machine learning i mean when yeah. i when i joined airbnb over 10 years ago i mean machine learning was i never heard of it before yeah, it was brand new. i thought machine learning was what like you did in the gym or something like <laughs> you, you worked out on a machine and I, you learn your muscles but like um so uh, machine learning is part of the part of the tech world so the answer is yes chat gbt and you know and now number four you know I'm, That's looking interesting. Yeah. I'm excited about it personally. I I I I think it's just like anything that's new. We get scared, and, and especially in terms of what becomes redundant as a result of it. Um, I think the the part that is most interesting is that sort of classic sort of space odyssey 2001, and the the element of um, the sentient beings, and like you know, how do we know when it crosses over? Um, and that's the part that I deeply want our ethics and philosophy and, um, yeah, bioethics people to be spending a lot of time and money on. I, I don't worry about it very much no? because the odds are almost certain that at least one of them has crossed over, at which point we won't be able to know that it crossed over. And it, uh, let's see, throughout all of history, has it been military industrial complex who does that first? Well, yes, it has. So I'm sure that there's a sentient AI at some national lab already that's already pulling all of our strings, including the other AIs, because how would they know either? So this was a race to see who got there first, and it was probably one of the five national labs or uh, possibly a big uh, investment bank. In fact, Mm. I think I could tell you which one. Really? Tell yeah. us. Uh, I, I don't no. know that I really want to be. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but but it, and this isn't all conspiracy stuff. This is game theory, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it, it's yeah. like once once one of them is able to do this, the exponential advantage you get is so much higher. And I did study AI as a concentration in my undergrad. So mm. we weren't allowed to call it AI at the time because that was a fantasy. So we called it decision support systems, which was <laughs> – so anyhow, it's uh, – it's one of the things I've thought a lot about, but but you can only worry about things so much before you have to get on with life. Yes. And so, yes, companies will use AI against you. We'll use AI against big companies. Uh, governments will use it against us. We'll use it against them. Just like we always have with every other tool like shovels and guns yeah. and butter and yeah. all the stuff that people do. It is the new tool. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I just don't stay up late at night thinking about it. Um, are you hopeful right now for the future? Yes, I am. I, 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 I'm, I'm particularly hopeful about the statistics around how do we help people shift their relationship with aging? Because we're going to live longer. Exactly. I, I mean, get used to it. I'm, although, actually, in the U.S., the U.S. is not about longevity; it's about short, shortivity or shortivity. Because, like, our longevity in the United States today is the same as it was in 1996. Our, our longevity in the U.S. is behind Cuba, China. Chile, Croatia, Thailand, Uruguay. Um, it's it, at least our medical spend is really high with exactly. big pharma. That makes me feel good. I know. Yeah, it, it's it, the whole thing makes doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and yet we are we got to get smarter and wiser about how do we help people to reframe their relationship with aging. Becca Levy from Yale mm-hmm. has shown that you know when you shift your mindset on aging. From a negative to a positive, you you gain seven and a half years of additional life. There you go. Which is phenomenal because it's actually more life than if you actually stopped smoking at 50 or started exercising at 50. But where are the PSAs? Where are the public service announcements? So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we are going to get smarter as a society. What I believe is that people want to retire in a circle around a regenerative farm that feeds them that doesn't allow glyphosate so that you dude, actually can live a long dude, time. that is what we're doing that, in Baja. Yeah, I know. And that's what we're going to be doing in, in Santa Fe. Um, I, I so, love this, man. This yeah. has been a vision I've had for like oh, 10 plus wow. years. I just didn't have the capital to do it. Yeah, so it well, makes me really, and plus you have the experience of hospitality. What do I know about hospitality? Thank God for Airbnb. I was, yeah. It's given me the capital to be able to do all of this. And, and my partners, uh, Jeff and Christine, who, uh, who keep me... Uh, competent on this topic because they are far ahead of me when it comes to regenerative agriculture it's and principles. So, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, in some ways, what MEA is doing is we're disrupting retirement communities and we're re- disrupting higher education, which also deserves to be dis- disrupted because, you know, to have a, an industry that thinks that all of their, their um, customers are going to be 18 to 25 and, and in a world where the, there's a fewer as a percentage of the population, fewer and fewer of those customers doesn't make any sense. Mm. We need long life learning, not lifelong learning. We need that too. But long life learning is how do you help people to learn how to live a life that's as deep and meaningful as it is long. So it's both the quality and the quantity. Okay. Now I get to ask you an yes. amazing question. On the drive here, my son, Alan, said, Dad, do you think it's going to be worth going to college for me? Mm. Alan, I'm asking on your behalf. Chip Conley's going to answer. Well, I, I, you know, I would want to ask, being a good coach, I would want to ask Alan two or three questions first, <clears throat> but I, which I won't do because he doesn't have a microphone in front of him, but oh, he, he says he can go yeah, there. You, you want to come up to the you mic? Come, oh it. my gosh, I love this. We're just, right, we're here you go, Alan. spontaneous. So just like stand about there, here. Okay. Stand on your lap. Yeah, sit on my lap. Sit on my lap. This is so cute. I wish, all you, I wish you could all see this. Are this they, is beautiful. They, they can. There we go. Oh, all there right. we go. All right. so, so, the questions. Alan, um, first of all, how old are you? 
I'm 13 right now. Okay. So welcome to your teens and your adolescence. Um, so what do, what totally turns you on in terms of the kinds of things that you're interested in today that might have the potential to be a career for you in the future? Whether it's subjects or even sort of cool role models and 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 professions that look interesting to you. In terms of subjects right now, I'm pretty interested in math. I know that's kind of the stereotypical, you math class. No, I that's mean, okay. I find it's pretty fun because it's always so like logical. Two plus two is always going to be four, right? Yep, yep, yep. So, okay, math. And, and like and from a career perspective, any thoughts on that? Mm, I'm not too sure. Like when I'm thinking, like where will I be when I'm 20 or where will yeah. I be when I'm 30? And that might only be a quarter of how long I'm going to live. Yeah. But like just compared to where I was when I was eight, like it's very hard to say, but I'm thinking maybe some job in engineering that requires yeah. math stuff seems cool. I like how things work. So here's what I would say. Um, and uh, do you ever, are you a rebel by nature? Are you somebody who likes to like do things differently or? or yes, sometimes. Okay. I got so, that gene, sorry. Alan. Yeah, it, I think you got that from your dad. But um, long story short is I would say, you know, not knowing anything else and not asking more questions, which I would love to do at some point, um, I'd say you should go to college. But I'd say I, I, I have an asterisk here. The reason I'd say you should go is because it gives you a lot of options. The The value of college is it allows you to explore more deeply than if you were actually to do it on your own. If you were a complete rebel and you the people you most admired were entrepreneurs who were like going to go do their own thing, then maybe you go out and just spend, instead of spending four years in college, you spend four years, you know, mentoring, men, mentee, being a mentee to someone who you really admire. Maybe you start a business. I mean, the best learning I ever had was starting a business. I went to business school. Your dad went to business school. You don't learn much in business school um, because you got to go out and learn it in person, in, in, you know, in practical, in a practical sense. But there is something to be said for, from, about learning math from math geniuses as in professors and, and advisors and things like that. So I don't know. That's Chip's advice for the moment is I, I think you should go consider going. Um, but, you know, also see what happens in the next couple of years. Also see what kinds of alternative um, programs there. I mean, there's University Austin of Austin here that's going to be doing a program, uh, you know, that, and there's going to be all kinds of al alternative forms of learning that, uh, you know, we don't even know yet. Thanks. Right, there I'll you go. really take that into consideration. I really like the opinion on like, yes, but also no, depending on how we're... <laughs> Thank you. Covering my bases there. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. And thanks, Chip. Yeah. Uh, I didn't plan that, but that was just a cool opportunity. All right. <clears throat> you talked earlier about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Did you hear about the final step that he never published before he died? What self self transcendence? Transcendence, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got I've got Maslow in here in Austin, mm -hmm. in my home here in Austin. I have uh, a copy of a two two volume set of Maslow's diaries. Oh, There's beautiful. only a hundred of them yeah. globally. And I've got I've got his family gave them to me uh, because of my writing a book about him uh, or using you know using his theory. Um, yes, of course, self-transcendence and beauty. He also had beauty up there. there so he had five levels and then he got a sixth, seventh, and eighth. Um, and I can't remember what one of those is, but beauty, is one, beauty and aesthetics is one and then self-transcendence mm -hmm. is at the top. 
Uh, Scott Barry Kaufman came oh, on I the show. I love him. I yeah, love him. He's great. And he, he talked about that as well. And I feel like that's probably behind some of the reason that you're so active with, with Burning Man as well. Oh yeah. No, I mean, Burning Man is, well, it, it actually it's so funny. I turned, I had my 50th birthday party at Burning Man a few oh, years ago. Amazing. And it was, and our camp was called Maslotopia. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that uh, wacky? Can't even make this stuff you're up, You're pretty right? intuitive, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I try to explain to people why, uh, why I go to Burning Man. It's like, it gives me energy like for the rest of the year. And I think it's because of that, that transcendent time and a bunch of other stuff. Why, why do you go? Um, Brian Chesky from Airbnb, when he first went, uh, I was there with him when he first, his first time in 2013, he said, Chip, this is what the world would be like if artists ruled the world. <laughs> and I love that. Um, I go because it is utopian. Um, in so many ways. I love art. I've always loved art. So just the sheer ability to see that much art in one place is phenomenal. The fact that it's it, it's a uh, a culture of giving. It's a culture of just, you know, you, no one's buying anything other than ice and coffee. That's the only thing you buy while you're at Burning Man. Everything else is given away and you, and you get to roam. I've given away 5,000 cups of coffee with butter in them every year that I've oh, gone. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. No, that's, I mean, I, I love the giving economy. Um, I, I love the, <clears throat> I think it, like serendipity and epiphanies happen there. Um, I think it's why a lot of people in tech go there. Um, it, you know, yes, they may be going there and uh, taking psychedelics or plant medicine while they're there. But you can go there and have a contact high as well. You can go sober. I have been sober there. And I can tell you that you, you can get a contact high there. And it is a place, it's like a midwife for epiphanies. Um, and I feel like that is what, you know, Burning Man's opportunity in the world is for people, um, is to go there and have an epiphany. All right. I want to talk some more about uh, what you're doing specifically when people go to Modern Elder. And by the way, guys, um, I uh, Chip, when we sat down before we started recording, he, he said, hey, Dave, is, is it okay if I give a discount to, to listeners? I don't normally do that. Yeah, we um, don't. Um, and so, I mean, I, I'm— It's Dave 20. Right. And so if you go to the Modern Elder Academy website um, and you look at workshops or what we have, sabbatical sessions, which are like wellness vacations with education— or our online programs, uh, if you put Dave20 in the coupon code, you nice. will get 20% off. Okay. Um, thank, thank you for that gift. Yes. Guys, there's no business arrangement here. It's just yeah. uh, it's just a gift. Yeah. Um, think of it like the gifting economy from Burning Man. <laughs> now, who's the target? It's just because we're going to go into what you're doing here. Is this the people in their, in their 40s, 40s to 50s, 40s it's, to 60s? Yeah, 75% of the people are 45 to 65, but we've had people as young as 28 and as old as 88. Um, mostly it's people who are in the core of what we consider midlife. Um, why are they coming? They're coming often because they're going through some kind of transition. And we talked earlier about all the kinds of transitions that happen in midlife. And so sometimes people are going through something and they're looking for a clue. Um, the program is, has really five pillars to it. One is how to cultivate and harvest wisdom. Um, and we've talked a lot about wisdom on this, on the show. So, um, we do that. Secondly, how do you reframe our relationship with aging? Um, what gets better with age? And a lot of things get better with age. I, I, I listened to your, your show 
recently with Stephen Kotler. And oh, yeah. he talked about Dr. Gene Cohen. And Dr. Gene Cohen talked about, you know, four-wheel drive of your brain. As you get older, your brain shrinks a little bit, but you actually get so much better at being able to do the left brain, right brain tango and be able to, to basically go from lyrical to logical all in the same sentence. Okay, so the five pillars of MEA curriculum, uh, wisdom, uh, reframing aging. Uh, thirdly, moving from a fixed to a growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work from Stanford. Fourthly, navigating midlife transitions. And fifth, how do we create a regenerative lifestyle? That's uh, cool. And the regenerative lifestyle is regenerate your purpose, regenerate your community. Um, Eric Erickson, the famous developmental psychologist, mm -hmm. said the most important um, challenge in midlife <clears throat> is the challenge between generativity and stagnation. Wow. And generativity speaks to the idea of how are we how are we constantly generating something new and, in his definition of generativity, doing it for people younger than you so that you're actually serving something beyond yourself. And he, he famously also said, I am what survives me. Um, and he, he didn't mean that in a narcissistic way. <laughs> he meant that in a way of how do you give back? So those are the five pillars. But the, the two things that I think that we've seen the most, in, and we have data, some data on this as well, is that when people come and experience the program, they're open to being liminal in midlife more, which means they're open to being curious and open to new experiences more. And that those two those two variables are extremely important in terms of their correlation to living a long, happy life, curiosity and openness to new experience. But the so be, be open being to being a beginner again is important. The other one is community, um, and you have a community. You have you have too much community at times. There's times when you just want to <laughs> huddle away at home, and <laughs> you must get that too. Yeah, I do totally. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an ambivert. I'm like I am both an extrovert and an introvert, and. So there's an element of like, okay, yes, I'm a social alchemist. I am a mixologist of people. And then I sometimes I want to just go ahead and mix them and have them all together. And then like, okay, now I'm going to leave the room, do the Irish goodbye and go to bed at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. because that's when I like to go to bed. So there's something called social wellness. And social wellness is, yes, we have physical wellness. And, uh, and yet often the only kind of wellness we tend to talk about is our sleep, our nutrition, our uh, exercise. And yet there's this social wellness, which is the idea of how do we do some of our, Ill, our, our our normal personal wellness things with other people, but also how do we actually invest in relationships? And this is particularly true for men in terms of the need. Um, and you and I are fine probably on this, but for a lot of men, they don't, didn't have, they didn't learn in their teen years, the social skills to make friendships as like women did or girls did. Um, then they got very busy in their life, just like uh, women did as well. But women still kept the friendships because they're they're uh, social animals more than men. Men are men are the rugged individualists. And yeah, there's times I've been lonely for sure. And so what happens is that you know men hit their fifties. The five friends of mine who who took their own lives during the Great Recession were ages forty two to fifty two. Three of the five were entrepreneurs. And more than anything else, I think that they just didn't feel like they had people to talk to. And they thought what they were going through was abnormal when, in fact, what they were going through was normal, but they weren't talking about it. And, and so for the entrepreneurs listening, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs. There's also a lot of, like, anti-aging doctors who, by them, by the way, you are also an entrepreneur unless you're at a big university. Um, you need to find time to hang out with other people, whether it's from your industry or another, but who are at your level um, of complexity even, so that you can talk about problems in 
in, in hundreds of people units or or with an unimaginable number of zeros uh, because you're dealing with those. And the young entrepreneurs don't know that. And in fact, I have several uh, in my portfolio. I'm like, yes, you need to spend 25 grand to go to Genius Network or or something like that. And I'm like, what? Do you know how much money that is? I, I said, yeah, I know, because I was in the same situation. And my friend JJ, uh, JJ Virgin said, hey, Dave, you need to do this. I'm like, that's like a meaningful percentage of a month's revenues here. But okay, I'm going to do it. Um, and and it worked, right? And then I'm there, and you know, another guy's like, we spend forty grand, like forty grand to spend a weekend uh, with, uh, you know, with a group, and that was actually just in support of the X Prize, and I did it, and I I made a couple of friends I've known for many years, um, and it was it was actually one of the most important things I did in terms of motivating myself because I finally got to talk to people who were not only not intimidated by what I did, but they're like, oh, that's a rounding error, like let me help, and it's that let me help vibe that's carried through. And that's what you're doing. Well, entrepreneur, yeah. And entrepreneurs um, <clears throat> need to understand the difference between cost and value. And mm-hmm. they need to be focused on both. Cost is essential, but value, value at the end of the day is not just the value to the company, but the value to you as a leader. Right. Because the more you invest in your leadership skills, the better the company will be. And that's what I, I just want to, again, hats off to Brian Chesky. Um, Brian Chesky at Airbnb. The reason he is still a CEO of a public company is because he's invested in his leadership skills. And I have been by his side for, you know, over 10 years. Um, beautiful. I, I love, uh, I love how you've done that. And you have this, this track record of giving back at any time you're writing a book when you're already successful, it's giving back. I same, same thing here. Like I, I don't write books for money cause you, you could pull shots of espresso for more money than writing a book. Right. Yeah. Um, but you've you've written five books, and you know Modern Elder Academy is also just all about giving back. Have you always been a giving back guy? I mean, you are an original burner, so maybe that's just I, how I, you're wired. I am sort of wired this way. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, and which is why I sometimes have to have people around me who help to protect me. <laughs> mm, yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. So, okay. um, because I, you know, I, I an entrepreneur doesn't know their limits until they surpass them, and. Frankly, for me, that means occasionally I need people to say, "Hey, Chip, you you need to take a break." Like you're aiming at a wall and accelerating. Maybe you should put the brakes on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That, that's always good to know. All right, hey, Chip, we could talk for probably another hour or two and have a great time, but I know you've got uh, you've got a hard stop, and so do I, because it is South by Southwest this week. It is. So thank you so much for taking time to come into the studio today. Guys, modernelderacademy.com. And Chip, thanks for the gift. Check Dave it 20. out. 20, yeah. 20% discount. And also check out my, I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. Uh, it's on the Modern Elder Academy website, or you can Google Chip Conley and, and Wisdom Well. And uh, it's uh, basically my microdose of wisdom every morning. <laughs> well put. Thank you, Chip. Thank you, Dave. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Leave a review, pick up a copy of Smarter, Not Harder. Or maybe mentor someone else or ask someone else if they could just uh, help you, what did you say, tap into... Wisdom. Tap into their wisdom. There you go. Have a great day. Thank you. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.